As a sales manager, you are judged by the performance of your team and you're praised when they do well. But one thing that you've not been able to figure out is how to get everyone on your team consistently hitting quota every single month. On the Snack Size Sales Podcast, we discuss the science of selling STEM. Sales leadership in the science, technology, engineering, and manufacturing fields is difficult. You will learn from sales managers just like you that will give you actionable insights and tips on how to develop as a leader and achieve your revenue targets every single month. So pop your headphones in and get ready to listen to my guests today. They will give you information and inspiration to ensure that you have actionable insights that you can put into place today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Science of Selling STEM. Today, I am so excited to introduce our guest, Samantha McKenna, also known as Sam. How are you today? I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. What a total pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for taking time today. Let me tell you guys a little bit more about Sam. She is an award-winning sales leader, brand ambassador for LinkedIn. She is a highly sought after speaker who spent her career doing two things, breaking records for herself, her employers, and now her clients. She always puts others first to ensure every client engagement she delivers has exceptional experience. Ooh, so you sound like you are all about the customer experience. But how did you start? start your career to how you got to where you are today. I think, you know, probably like everybody else, I fell into sales. I don't know a lot of people who have, you know, had a long-term vision of like, I'm going to be a salesperson when they're six, right? We're all like ballerinas and lawyers and all that stuff. Um, But I fell into sales. I had someone offer me a job. I actually turned it down. I come to realizing I've turned down a lot of the jobs that I was originally offered and then eventually took them. But I thought, okay, you know, I'll give it a shot. And I I think the reason I didn't even want to get into sales was the perception of what it's like to be a salesperson, you know, that it's like aggressive and salesy and slimy and car salesman and all that stuff, you know, which, you know, we're actively working to change that perception. But I got started there as an AE and um, the rest is kind of history. Mm, So tell us about your first, when you first dipped your toe into the water and became an AE, what were those first days or months like for you? So scary, you know, and I think, I think you, you get into a sales role and you realize that you're continuing down this path of a sales job is really predicated on whether or not you can sell, right? So you can't just kind of skirt your way through. You can't figure out like, oh, how do I just be a good person and do mediocre work and just hopefully keep my job? Like it's, you know, it's cutthroat. If you don't sell, you don't get to hang around. So I was terrified. And thankfully, I think one of the best things that I had going for me is that I worked for a small company and I had a CEO at the time who really saw the potential that I had. So while I didn't succeed right out of the gate, you know, he gave me so much you know, advice. He constantly educated me and then said, you know, let's figure out how to continue building you. But I was so scared. You know, how do I ask for a contract? If somebody wants one thing and we do just a slightly different thing, you know, will I lose the deal? It was so terrifying. And mostly because I'm someone who hates to inconvenience people. So the thought of calling someone and being like, Bill, I would love for you to buy my stuff, please, thank you. You know, and then he says, I'm not interested. I'll be like, oh, okay, thanks, sorry. Sorry to inconvenience you, bye. Um, That was my early, early experience and my early perception of what sales was. 
So how did you get over that? You know, like, ah, I don't want to bother people. And I actually have to ask for things and push a little bit. How did you get through that? I think, you know, it's the most amazing transition when you realize some of the most obvious things that are in front of you. And for me, the obvious thing I was missing is that sales isn't this aggressive, skeezy kind of thing. It is really the art of helping someone. And I think one of the most influential things my, I think it was my head of sales at the time said was, no one's taking a call with you for their health. Like they're busy. They're not going to get on the you know the horn with you and just listen to what you have to say if they don't have a challenge that they need you to solve. So if you shift the idea of sales from you just trying to push your products on someone to thinking about the fact that you're here to help them to be a pair of hands, right? You'll really change your lens and start to be, have totally different conversations. And that's what we say. Like my my mantra, I think probably since that day, has been even thinking about our discovery calls, our, our first dates, if you will, as an opportunity to simply solve the challenge of the customer. And it may not be through us. You know, we get people who call Sam Sales all the time and they're like, you know, have you fly us to the moon? And we're like, oh, fascinating. Not what we do. Uh, right. But like, I need to get to that. I need to find out what the challenges are, what the landscape is, what they're looking for so that I can be of help to them, even if it's not necessarily with what we do. <laughs> so really thinking about like, hey, I have a million different things that I can do, but I said, yes, I'll talk to you. So, okay, sure. That means there maybe there's some kind of interest and it's your job as a salesperson to really say, okay, this is how I can help you. I like to call it committing sales malpractice. If you <laughs> don't actually help the person when they have said, oh, I do have a problem here. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you you think about it, like just that even the way we kick off a discovery call, we talk about this ad nauseum. I think so many people struggle with like, okay, I want to get to their challenge, but what do I, what do I do? Do I show up on the discovery call and say, you know, what interested you in taking this call today? Hint, it's not what you say. Or do I just go through my, you know, 17 questions to uncover bant? No, but instead, if you kind of take it, like take some of the words you just used, right? Even though you were speaking about the customer side, think about this. You show up to a call, we start having a conversation, and then I say, so listen, I could tell you a million things about Sam Sales, but I'd love to hear from you first. Can you tell me a little bit about your team, your challenges, maybe what the overall landscape is like on your side? Can we start there if that's okay? And what I love about this is that you're kind of breaking that question down into three parts, right? I'm going to tell you about me. I will. But first, I'd love to hear about you. And you kind of build some EQ in after that, right? If I say, like, tell me about you. And then I just sit there, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, what, um, in headlights, right? Like what about me? So I want to build in some kind of fluffy words there to give you time to think and give you some crutches and then ask for permission. The most beautiful part about this, especially when we teach it to sales reps is that they're like, okay, I'm going to try this. They try it. They get two or three or four minutes of stream of consciousness from that buyer, right? Their pens are on fire taking notes. And then they're like, oh my God, why haven't I been doing this my whole career? And we're like, I don't know, but rinse and repeat. <laughs> And then, you know, it's like that aha moment when you're in a discovery call and it goes right, right? Because sometimes you will throw a question out and people will be like, oh yeah, this one word answer. And you're like, oh no, I messed what up. I, I forgot do? something, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> or even if you ask that, you know, what interested you in taking this call today? Just think about like your grumpiest buyer. They can show up to the call and say, you know what? I'm not really sure your BDR book time with me. And you know, here I am. 
And then you're like, <gasps> and you get nervous. And then you talk about yourself for 28 minutes. So instead, right, let's think about the question that can really net us something valuable. And it's why'd you show up here today in a beautifully said professional way? <laughs> awesome. So you started your world in sales as an AE. What was your, the next step on your career? What did you do after that? I stayed in that first role for about four years and I really took the time. I think this would be a piece of advice I would have for anybody is don't try to move too quickly. And I think especially for a younger generation, we are so quick to want to move up the ladder, right? I've been in SDR for eight minutes. Can I be an AE? Can I be an enterprise AE? And we're like, hang on, hang on, hang on. So I stayed there for four years. I mastered my craft. I took the breathing room that I had to really figure this out from a foundational perspective. I learned how to be a great social seller. And then what was really interesting to me is the company I worked for uh, resold a phenomenal product called On24. And at some point they made a decision to go in a different way. They built a relationship with another vendor. And we kind of went from selling like the Teslas to selling like, you know, sure to catch on fire, 1978 Pintos. And I was like, oh no. And it's interesting because I lasted about 10 days selling that product. The relationships that I built with countless clients were really starting to come undone because people were like, this technology is really bad. It's making us look really bad. And so I did something that I thought I would never do, and I quit without having another job lined up. And to me, the brand that I'd built, the relationships that I'd worked tirelessly to build were too important to leave up to this bad technology. So I quit. And the really incredible thing was my, again, my CEO at the time reached out to the head of sales at On24 and said, Sam, just quit. You'd be a fool not to have her, like go hire her immediately. And that's what happened. So I ended up transitioning from having sold that product for so long to then moving to a much bigger organization on 24 and starting as an AE there. And I'll say too, when I got there, having been a top performer, like the top performer at a small company for so long, you're kind of dropped into that, you know, it's like you're going from like middle school where you're like the most popular kid to high school where you're like nobody. And for me, I was figuring out quickly how to navigate the internal organization and how to succeed as quickly as I could. Hmm. So I'm sorry. I had to take a moment because you <laughs> bet on yourself. A lot yeah. of people, they don't bet on themselves, right? Like, so you realize like literally 10 days, it's like two working weeks. You said, I can't do this yeah. because one thing that you found that was so very important for you, it's your personal brand. And it. a lot of times at salespeople, as entrepreneurs, we don't always think about our personal brand, but I tell people my word is my bond. If I come to you and I say, this is a good product, this is a good service, I stand behind it. And I know 10 years later, like there are things that I sold 10 years ago and people still know me for that, right? Because it's like, I stood behind this. This was a good thing. So when you went from being the eighth grader to being the ninth grader, I actually have an eighth grader right now. So I get it. He's like, I'm a big guy. We're doing all these things. And I'm like, yeah, next year you're going to be a small. Just wait, dish. just wait. <laughs> so how did you make that transition? How did you start making a name for yourself and kind of going through the ranks there? Again, like same thing, I had great reprieve from a great leader uh, at the time. I had Mike Henry was my boss, um, who I still know and was a client of ours even just in the last year. But he gave me a little space, you know, well, actually quite a few of us came over from that old company. And we came over in at the end of Q2. So I basically had six months of breathing room, 
to figure it out and to hopefully bring some of those relationships over. I think that's the first year, the only year I didn't hit quota because I was just trying to figure it out. And then all bets were off, you know, in January. And I'll tell you too, you know, looking at the year ahead, looking at that six months, I knew I wasn't going to hit my quota. So instead of just thinking like, how do I hustle and grind and put $3,000 on the board? I really just shifted into thinking about long-term success. So what can I do in Q3 and definitely in Q4 to build these deals that will tip in Q1 and Q2 and Q3? Taking our foot off the gas and thinking about what's realistic and what we can do to be smart for the year ahead was really important. And I'll tell you, even as a leader, this is something that I did as well. In fact, during my time at On24, our team had obliterated our quota already, but mostly due to one really strong top performing rep who just kept closing deal after deal after deal. Two of our team members had no shot of making it and so for the year, but we knew their jobs weren't in jeopardy, but there was just no way they were going to hit their quota. So at the end of October, I think I said, I don't want you guys to think about closing a single extra deal for the year. The only thing I want you to do is build a pipe for Q1 and the year ahead. And that's what they did. And so it was really tough for me as a leader to keep showing up for those forecast calls and saying, we don't have anything. We don't have anything for these two reps. But when Q1 comes, right, like midnight and one minute on the 31st, when you know you're like, <gasps> I have to start the year over. We, I mean, we crushed it. We, again, obliterated our number, that team performed, those reps performed, and everybody was like, how did you do that? And frankly, I did it through insubordination and <laughs> not trying to close deals when we knew it wasn't going to pay off for us as a team. Mm. You mentioned having a really great leader a couple of times, and mm. I'm curious, what about those previous managers you had made them such great leaders? I think it's interesting you when you've got great leadership they see the potential in you and they give you what it is that you need to succeed right they'll give you access to resources they'll give you support they'll let you you know test the waters with a marketing event or going to some conference or something like that and i think it's our job every time we get a little bit of a line to prove that we've done something meaningful with it because that's how we'll continue to get those chances I think for me, you know, I've had on the flip side, I've had bad bosses. You know, I remember once going to, was running a multi, a bi-coastal team, flying back and forth to San Francisco all the time. And I, I don't know, was working 80 or 90 hours. And I remember saying to my leader, I'm dying. Like, I'm just dying. And I said, you know, I could use an EA. I could use somebody who could just even take five or six hours of back and forth scheduling every single week for me. And I remember him laughing and saying, I don't have an EA. You don't get an EA. And I was like, well, okay. So it just, the great leadership to me is seeing that potential, rewarding the effort, right? Especially when somebody goes above and beyond for your company is always doing more than they're asked for and delivers, like find out how you can just skyrocket that person, give them the resources, whether it's personnel, whether it's, you know, additional training, whatever it is, but you've got incredible people, like set them on fire in a good way. Mm. <laughs> yes. Right? Like really elevate them. Yeah. Elevate yeah. them. And I think that one of the biggest wrong things we do as a leader is like, I don't have that. I never had that. So you can't have that. Right? Oh my gosh. And the thing is, just because it was hard for you, just because nobody taught you to do this, doesn't mean that when I ask for help or when your new person asks for help, that you shouldn't give it to them because the past does not always predict the future. 
You nailed it. And I think even just you as a leader, having a conversation with those top performers or those people that you're like, there is a spark here and I want to turn it on. When you even think about those top performers, I like, again, one of our best and brightest, one of the things I asked for her before the days of BDRs was let's give her a BDR. You know, she is unbelievable as a closer. The fact that she's spending so much time prospecting is bananas. Like what a poor division of labor for us as a company. Let's hire even a part-time resource that can just book meetings. So the only thing she's doing is being in front of customers. Imagine if we just thought outside the box a little bit, had tested the waters with that, our revenue would have been off the charts because we would have been making the most effective use out of her brains and her talent. So I think it's looking for that and even talking to your people and saying, if I could do something to make you even more successful, if I could remove a burden from your plate to you know, just set your talents on fire, what would that be? Imagine how valued that person will feel just knowing that you're even asking. Mm, really valuing each person as a person. I love saying salespeople are humans too, right? (laughs) A lot of times we just think about them as these revenue generating machines, but they are humans too, right? And they have needs and they have desires and they have really key things that we as leaders should give them to really expand. So you went from being an AE, leading a team, going from coast to coast, and then you transitioned into entrepreneurship. So tell me about the why. Why did you decide to strike out on your own? I think, you know, as humbly as I can say it, every year, you know, from being an AE to then working my way through leadership, the executive ranks, every single year that I, I was in sales, I did something, you know, phenomenal in terms of breaking records or getting our full team over quota or being the top performing leader out of six or seven or eight or nine. And I think just at some point, and I'll say like, there's never been a year in my career where I've made less money. Every single year continues to go up. And I think to me, there just became a time to say like, if I can make an impact like this on one team, on several teams, on one organization, what could I do if I just went out on my own? And I'll say it is terrifying. You know, you're giving up your salary, your comp, your options, your healthcare, all of that stuff, right? And you're going out on your own. But to me, what an ultimate test of salesmanship. Can I go on my own, build it from scratch and sell myself or sell what services I think our clients would need? And I'll I'll say too, like I had incredibly humble aspirations. You know, I thought, well, I'll just go, we'll, we'll support, I'll support four, five clients, you know, I'll teach them how to sell, I'll listen to their calls, I'll do all that jazz. And if I can make X amount of money and help, you know, three or four or five clients, I'll be happy. And, you know, we grew seemingly overnight. We started in September 5th, 2019. I think we cleared like $6,000 of receivables for that quarter. Woo! We signed more than that. And then in our next year, we just blew our number out of the water. I think we hit 312% of our forecast. We ended 52, 54 clients. And then ended last year at about 110 or 11 clients. Um, So, you know, it was, again, and I think for me, I always try to keep the bar low, try to keep my expectations low for what we're going to do, and then hopefully accelerate over that. Mm, So once again, you bet on yourself, right? (laughs) You said, ah, I can do this really, really well for this one organization, for this one team. But, you know, I'll I'll toot your horn for you. I'm too amazing to keep this secret all locked up, right? So I need to share all my magical fairy dust with so many other people. And literally in less than three years, you've gone from zero to 
you know, having over a hundred clients. So if there's somebody here and they're out there and they're like, you know what? I'm thinking about betting on myself. What is the single best piece of advice you can give them? Oh man, I think there's a few really important components. So I would say probably the very first one is follow through. And I say that with with it because there's so few people that say I'm going to do something and then consistently follow through. If you are that person that makes New Year's resolutions and keeps them, you're probably in good shape. If you quit at six weeks, like the most of us do, right? Probably not so much. But think about that. Are you, you know, that's an honest conversation to have with yourself. Are you a woman or man of your word, right? Do you follow through on the things you say you will do by the time you say you will do them? Because I I think that's the thing that surprises, I think a lot of people about me is the, just the follow through. If I say I'm going to do it, I will. And for your business, especially, that's so important. Having to wake up in the morning, be alone and say, I'm going to create content. I'm going to go prospect. I'm going to go sell without anyone but yourself holding you accountable, that's a tough thing. So I would say that first and foremost. I would say the second thing is make sure you can sell. So if you can't sell, then you need to have the capital to have someone who can be a partner to you, a co-founder or something like that, they can go and prospect. Because I'll say where most businesses fail is they start a business, they capitalize on their referrals, their inbound leads, people that they've had as clients before, just like we did. But then after two or three years, they plateau. And uh, you know that business runs out or they just focus on executing the business that they've already sold and they don't continue to build that pipeline. So you need to have someone that's capable of doing that if that's not you, and then making sure that you actually follow through. So putting those two things together, and I'll just say one more thing, like the entrepreneurs that we coach, you know, I'll try to spend time with people here and there, but we'll talk about, you know, their deals and their pipeline. And I'm like, this is great. You've got a bunch of pipeline, like what's happening with this. And somebody will say, oh, I owe them a proposal. And I'm like, when? And they're like, three weeks ago. And I'm like, Pfft. right. So making sure if you can sell, but maybe you're not great at follow through, then make sure there's someone who can do that. Okay. One more thing I lied. And just even on our front, like thinking about our division of labor as we've grown, I realized how much work it was for me to not only be on the call, to sell the product, to create the proposal, to follow through, to nurture. So instead, you know that most of that work is by my chief of staff. Thinking back to that top rep that I mentioned, how do we capitalize on her talents, my talents, to do what I'm best at? And then take the things that somebody else can probably do and outsource that to someone else so that you can be focused on the things that really deserve your talent and attention. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I 150% endorse every single thing that you said, (laughs) because, you know, like one thing that you said, you told your boss, like, hey, I'm working 80 to 90 hours a week. Can I have an EA? literally six months into my business that was my the first part i was like i can't do all this like, same same right much. like whoa you know it's like you have to have someone you can lean on because if you get i call them weeds if you're always in the weeds then you can't do everything and even for my podcast i tell my team i want to show up and interview all the other stuff before and all the other stuff afterwards I'm not going to do it. I don't yeah. even want to learn how to edit a podcast. I don't, that's like, that's not even what I want to do, right? No, and it's not a good use of your time. Yeah. Exactly. And I think whether you work for a corporation or you're working for yourself, you have to really lean into your strengths and realize that in order to grow, in order to grow your territory, in order to grow your team, in order to grow your company, you must reach out and say, okay, I can't do everything. I need to hire people. And yes, you do have to invest. You have to invest to grow. 
And that's, I think, the toughest part, right? Like you and I can account for that, that when you are running your own business, it's your money that you're taking out, you know, to pay these individuals to invest in this business. It's not like we have a budget or that we came from someone else that, you know, has this pile of money for us. It's literally taking money out of what we would spend it on and spend it on personnel instead. But to your point, you know, for me, I'm very, I'm very cautious about how we hire and very, um, I guess I always call it, I'm cart way, way behind the horse. You know, I'm never like, oh, we need 16 employees before we really need them. But that investment, you know, Carol's my EA, God bless her, the things that she deals with on my behalf. But that investment, even when I see her invoices come through, I look at the hours that she worked and I'm like, if she wasn't doing that, I would be doing that, right? What an incredible reprieve and benefit it is to have someone like that in your life that can handle the minutia of the everyday. Absolutely, 150%. So you start your company a couple years ago and you have over 100 clients now. How are you able to service all of them in excellence? Like how, what are you doing to really make sure that client number one and client number 120 are getting the same amount of Sam? I think it is, again, like just thinking about division of labor and what I'm needed for and then what the rest of our teams can do to support them. So as you kind of said, like earlier, the brand for me is the most important thing. I never want a client to come and have an engagement that they didn't expect or have a subpar engagement. You know, I think that that's part of our appeal is that people are like, you're gonna be blown away when you work with Sam and Sam's team. I think that's also what's helped our growth, right? Because there's so many consultants out there that, you know, do what we do, sales training, help you stand up organizations, LinkedIn training, social selling, all that stuff. But I think the kind of difference with us, one is that experience, that responsiveness, that being on it, right? That brand of who we are. But two, I think the other thing is the tangibility and practicality of what we teach. We're never saying like, hello, you know, be in front of your clients more. We're like, here's how you do it. Here's what you write. Here's the timing. Here's how the medium you use. Very, very specific. So it's thinking about every engagement. What is it that they expect? What do I have to do and what can someone else do? And it's interesting, even kind of looking at my calendar for February, it's definitely not light, but it's lighter than it was last February. And it kind of gave me a pause and I was like, wait a minute. And I'm like, should I be worried about this? And I just realized it's because I have so many other people on the team that are doing the things that I was doing before. That's why I've got more room to do the things that are really important for me to do, right? And then the rest of the team handles it. I'll say just the other thing, you know, I talk about our brand a lot. I reinforce when I see great examples of things or when I see poor examples out in the space, I'm like, take a look at this. This is why we're different. This is what makes us different. And I think it reinforces our brand in a really positive way through and through to our employees. So it's not like taking an example of like, here's what you did wrong and here's how we should have done it better. It's here's how you're doing it really great. And here's how someone else is not doing it well and what I would have done differently, right? So it communicates that to our team without ever needing to be negative. But I think the other thing that we do to really think about our growth and who we are is we're really a culture of growing versus knowing. And I celebrate when people fall on their swords and talk about a mistake they made. I celebrate when they share that collectively with our company. I want you to feel comfortable to, you know, screw things up. I want you to know that you're going to be human and that you're going to disappoint us. The thing that I care about the most is that we learn from our mistakes. We learn from the things that we do that maybe don't meet the mark and then we change them. So we continue to build as a team because we're not perfect today and we never will be, right? But we can be better than we were yesterday. Mm, being 1% better every day. I love that. 
That is amazing. And I think that, you know, one thing that as a business owner, as a sales leader, that's so important is to ensure that consistent customer experience. Like you mentioned early in your career, that you were acquired by someone and the experience wasn't the same. And I think that when you ensure that what you believe, your mission, your vision is through the fabric of the organization, that's what really helps you accelerate and grow and push. So when you think back over your career, working in the corporate realm, now out on your own, what is one thing that you are most excited about accomplishing? You know, I think it, it has to be this business. I think just the, you know, both my parents were entrepreneurs. I dreamed of being able to do that. And I just never thought, frankly, I would have the courage. Like fear 100% held me back for however long. But I think I'm, I'm proud of waiting to start this career by the time I had built a brand. So, you know, not trying to jump the gun or being in sales for two weeks and then saying like, I'm going to consult on this, like some people do, right? Like, let me make sure that I've got a well-rounded base of experience and that I've done this over and over and over again. And I can use that as my credibility factor. But I think just standing this business up and building it to what it's been, is probably my biggest achievement. And I'll say too, like there's been two experiences in my life, um, kind of thinking about what I said before, like, don't be so quick to get promoted, but sometimes don't be so quick to take the, you know, sexy job title. When I left that company where I didn't support the product, when I left, the new owner came back and said, would you stay? Like, what can we do to get you to stay? We're going to make you VP of sales. And I was like, what? Like going from account executive and then just skipping up to be VP of sales. But I remember I got great advice um, from one of my clients who said, well, if you stay, you'll be VP of sales, but you're still going to be VP of, she used another S word and then sales. Um, and I was like, oh, and then, you know, when it was the decision to leave on 24, I transitioned to LinkedIn as a leader. And that again was kind of two decisions. Final rose was with LinkedIn and then with another uh, company that's very well known. And the company at that point um, had about a million dollars in ARR. They've since been acquired, big success. But the the role there was to be their head of sales and to be, you know, basically be their CRO because they were so small. And to me, the decision between being CRO for a company that could take off and then being a head of sales for a company like LinkedIn was a tough decision. But what I realized is I didn't feel like my education was perfectly well-rounded yet. You know, I could have gone to be that CRO. I could have figured it out. I could have built it like I built Sam Sales. But I felt like I was just missing that big company experience and just a few years of education that would really help me. So again, not taking the big sexy role, but taking the role with a company that frankly, I was so, so fortunate to work for and continuing to build on my baseline of education. Mm. And so many times, especially in this day and age where people are like, yeah, I don't want to work at this company. There are a gazillion companies hiring. It's like, yeah, that's a really nice title. And I would love to do that job, but I've never had that experience. And what happens is it actually comes back to bite you because right. you take the job and you're in the job. You're not successful in the job. You get demotivated and then you're out there looking again and you, you're taking a step back. So instead yeah. of going up and down and up and down, just say, yeah, you know what? I'm not quite ready for that yet. I should probably take this stepping stone before moving on. 
And when we talk about Peter Principle um, in the corporate world all the time, and for anyone who's not familiar with that, it's the idea of being, you're promoted to the highest level of your incompetency. So what you basically do, let's say you jump the gun and you, let's say I jumped the gun and I took that VP of sales job, which I was in no way prepared to take, but let's say I'd taken it. I might have figured it out and learned and things like that because that's my nature. But for most people, they'll take that job. They'll be excited about the title. They may still not learn how to do it well. They may fail. And then what are they going to do? They're going to jump to a lateral position and a lateral position and a lateral position because they might try to interview for the SVP or the EVP role, but they don't understand even their own role. So they don't, they don't interview properly, right? They can't articulate the value of what they would bring to that position. So they just continue to go down that path. And I would say like just a great kind of hiring alert for anyone that's, you know, an entrepreneur or seed round series A. If you're hiring a VP of sales, one, I've got a great recruiter for you, but two, think about this in terms of who, like what their previous experience has been like. Do they continue to move through the same job, through the same size companies, or maybe it's the same title, but they keep going bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of organization. You should either go bigger with the same title, or you should go bigger title with smaller or equal size organizations. If they're not doing that, that's a signal to you that maybe there's a gap in competency and that they just are stuck in the same role. Mm, that's really great advice. I love your memes after these things. They're so good. <laughs> no, I mean, like... I, I'm just absorbing it. It's like I'm just like eating ice cream and listening, like I'm watching a movie. <laughs> and then and, what happened? You know, <laughs> and a lot of the clients that I actually work with, they fall into that trap that you're talking about. When mm -hmm. I'm talking to their managers or the companies that are hiring me, they're like, yeah, they were up for a promotion, but they didn't get it. And it's because we noticed one, two, three things. And it's like, because they've been able to skirt below, right? They've yeah. been able to go below and, and go with the flow, but now they want to take a step up and they're like, I've been with this organization for 10, 15, 20 years. Why can't I move up? You know what I mean? And then yeah. they get so discouraged but it is so, so, so important. You must invest in your own development. And Completely. if you want someone else to bet on you, you have to first start by betting on yourself. You nailed it. Couldn't agree with you more. Awesome. This has been an amazing conversation, Sam. You've given me so many little ice cream moments where I just want to sit back and eat my ice cream and listen <laughs> to the podcast again and take notes. So if people want to get in contact with you. What is the one best way? Yeah. So pop over to LinkedIn, of course. Um, you'll find I post tons of content there. And then if you also want to pop over to our website, samsalesconsulting.com, sign up for our newsletters. We give you goal and nuggets to use every single week. We've got subscriptions you can sign up for to learn everything about sales, leadership, hiring, LinkedIn, um, all without having to spend a fortune on hiring us directly. Um, and, but more than anything, you know, come and uh, connect with us on LinkedIn because it's a great place to have a conversation and attract what we do. Spoken like a true sales person. Here is the free way to get me. Here is how you can get just a bite of the cookie. And here's how you can get the whole cookie. I love it. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time, your talent, and your expertise with us today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for this great conversation. What a pleasure to be here, truly. Awesome. Well, guys, gals. That was another lovely episode of the Science of Selling STEM. And remember, in whatever you do, in all things, transform your sales. Until next time.
Thank you for joining us today on the Snack-Sized Sales Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and leave us a review. Learn how to continue increasing your bottom line by getting simplified sales strategies delivered to your inbox weekly by going to www.snacksizedsales.com. Trust me, your bank account will grow and love you.